I did tell a kid to look at a goat's teats to find out if it was male or female. Yeah. Oh, and you called the got my niece to say the word devil. Hi, welcome everyone to the Four Corners Crime Cast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about Rodney Alcala. This is a really nice, lighthearted one, right, Katie? No. Heavy content warning on this one. Ah. And where did you do your research on this one, Katie? The book for this one was The Dating Game Killer by Stella Sands. And I also watched the 48 Hours Mystery episode, The Killing Game. And where is this one mostly located? Um... Mostly in California, but there's part of it in New York. The Dating Game Killer was a pretty good game show back in the 60s and 70s, I think. It was just the dating game, but yes. Oh, there was no killer there in There was that? no killer. No, not except for the episode that he was on. He was on it? Yeah, that's why he's called the Dating Game Killer. We'll get into that in part two. But oh yes, my he was. god, what the fuck? Ooh, so this could be a multi-parter. Yes, probably two, but maybe three. His court case is absolutely insane. So They say third time's a charm, so... Yeah, why don't you go ahead and start us off, Katie? Rodrigo Alcala, more famously known by Rodney James Alcala, was born August 23, 1943, in San Antonio, Texas, where the family lived until he was eight years old. I've actually heard his song, uh, Holy Diver. They were a middle-class family, and his parents and grandmother, who lived with the family, enjoyed spending as much time as possible with Alcala and his three siblings. He attended Catholic school for most all of his school years, and was reported by teachers to have excellent grades and absolutely no behavioral problems. At the age of eight, Alcala's grandmother's health began to fail, and she requested that she spend her remaining years in Mexico. Alcala had an easy transition into his new life in Mexico until his grandmother passed away, and not long after, his father abandoned the family. He remained with his mother and siblings in Mexico until 1954, when they packed up and moved to Los Angeles, California. So there was no signs of childhood trauma? No. there's This case is really interesting because, from a psychology point of view, there was no of those like markers that you normally get that kind of predict serial killing. He had no trauma... In his childhood, he was never abused, he never hit his head, never had any ODD or anything like that. He was basically a perfect child. Interesting. Alcala graduated high school in 1960 and a year later joined the Army. He moved to North Carolina, where he attended a program to become a paratrooper and worked as a clerk. In January of 1962, his father passed away, a possible reason for his behavior change roughly a year later. One day in June 1963, Alcala's mother opened the door to find him standing outside, almost 3,000 miles away from North Carolina, where he was stationed. When she asked why he was there, he told her that he'd gone AWOL and had hitchhiked all the way back to California. Were him and his father close? Not really, after he abandoned the family and remarried. That's what I thought. I was like, if his father was gone, suddenly he... It was mainly his grandmother that he was really upset about, but I'm sure losing your father one way or another is upsetting. Yeah, that makes sense, especially because, like... She urged him to report back to the army to avoid the negative consequences going AWOL carries, and he eventually agreed. At a local recruiting station, Alcala was interviewed by a psychologist and immediately taken to a hospital for psychological care. Fort Bragg, where he was stationed, reported that he had been suffering what they believed to be a nervous breakdown over the last few weeks before he'd left. 
He was transferred to a hospital on a Marine Corps base, and it was decided he would be discharged in February 1964. He was diagnosed with severe antisocial personality disorder. How, how does antisocial personality disorder actually, like, rear its head? What does that look like? It's based, it's psychopathy, so oh. he's has no empathy, no emotions. He has that really superficial, like, glib and charm. Basically, Ted Bundy is, like, the picture-perfect psychopath, so okay. you can base your assumptions off that. After being released from the hospital, Alcala moved in with his mother and applied for California State University. After attending a few courses there, Alcala applied for UCLA and was accepted based on his excellent grades and his IQ of 140, which had been tested by the Army. He graduated in 1968 with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree and began to pursue his dream of being a photographer. He moved out of his mother's home and into an apartment, which would soon be the scene of one of his first crimes. He was a really shitty photographer or what? No, he was a good photographer. Oh. Why? Oh, you said one of his first crimes. I thought he was just that bad at photography. On September 25th, 1968, eight-year-old Tally Shapiro was walking to school on a beautiful sunny day. Unknown to her parents, Tally had been waking up early every day and walking to school rather than taking the bus, which made her uncomfortable. As she walked, a car pulled up alongside her, and the driver, Rodney Alcala, offered her a ride to school. As most children do, Tally told him she wasn't allowed to talk to strangers and continued on her way. Alcala told her he wasn't a stranger, he knew her parents, and he had a beautiful picture to show her. Thinking, That's not true. That's not likely. Thinking it was safe, Tali agreed to the ride and got into Alcala's car. As this was taking place, a man named Donald Haynes was driving to work and had stopped at a stop sign. Glancing to the other side of the street, he saw a man in a car slowly following a young girl, saying something to her, and the girl getting into the car. Something in Donald's gut told him whatever he just saw wasn't right and he should follow the car. After a short drive, Donald and the car pulled into an apartment parking lot, and he watched as a man led the little girl inside one of the apartments. Donald found a payphone and called the police, telling them it was most likely nothing, but something seemed off and he would rather be safe than sorry. Donald actually sounds like the right kind of person. Like, he sounds like a good dude. Saw something he didn't like, tracked it down, called the police, and potentially, you know... He 100% saved her life. Yeah. When LAPD officer Chris Camacho arrived, he briefly spoke to Donald and went and knocked on the apartment door. Alcala appeared in the window, telling Camacho he'd just gotten out of the shower and needed to get dressed. Looking at him, Camacho saw his hair wasn't wet and the reality set in. He told Alcala he had 10 seconds or he was kicking the door in. When he heard what sounded like a moan, he didn't wait a second longer and kicked the door in. He and his backup split up to search for the man and the little girl reportedly with him. A bloodstain led Camacho into the kitchen, where he found Tally Shapiro naked, lying in a pool of blood. Her head had severe trauma, like it had been beaten with something, and a metal bar lay over her neck, suffocating her. Although she looked dead, Camacho removed the bar and checked for a pulse. Tally was still alive, but barely. As he waited for the ambulance to arrive, the other officers continued checking the apartment, but found nothing. Kala had managed to slip out the back door and get away. That's so fucking slippery. He just, as soon as the cop came to the front door, he just ran out the back door. Yeah, more than likely. He was probably right in the middle of sexually assaulting her. 
when he knocked. Again, though, it's really awesome that somebody had the wherewithal to uh, feel that something was wrong and report it. Because, like you said, it saved this little girl's life. At the hospital, it took 27 stitches to close the wound to the back of Tali's head. A few days later, she began to regain consciousness and recognized her family, a good sign she didn't have any significant brain damage. Fortunately, she didn't remember anything that had happened in Akala's apartment after looking at a photograph and blacking out from being struck on the back of her head, saving her from the memory of the brutal sexual assault. After a month in the hospital, she returned home, and several months later, she was able to get out of bed. Once she was able to walk again, her family moved to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, wanting to be as far away as possible from the horrible memories California now held. To make matters worse, the man who had almost killed Tolly evaded police capture and was still out there somewhere. So they didn't have any clues at this point or any leads at this point as to who did it? They knew who he was at this point, but it was 1968 and they really had no way of tracking him down. After Tolly had been taken to the hospital on September 25th, officers spoke to neighbors and looked through the apartment for any identification. They found Alcala's student ID and dozens of photographs he'd taken of young women. Officers learned from neighbors that he was quiet and mostly kept to himself. When Detective Steve Hodell was assigned the case, he spoke to some of Alcala's professors, who claimed that Rod wouldn't hurt a fly and was a perfect gentleman. True to his antisocial personality disorder diagnosis, Alcala knew how and when to use his charm to fool people. And that's something we see a lot with, like, serial killers who, like, uh, they have, like, pretty severe personality disorder or whatever, but they know how to turn it off when it comes time to lead people in the wrong direction, it seems. I actually think it comes from, like, the, the lack of empathy. They have to be able to find a way to mirror human emotion and things like that. And uh, charm is one of those things that can be learned on how people think you're charming without having to actually have a personality. Like, you back can be it faked. Up. Yeah, I mean, these people just basically mirror what people want to see in them, right, Kitty? Exactly, yeah. Pretty much from a super young age, they watch people and they learn what situations require a certain emotion, and so they they act appropriately in every situation because they're not actually feeling anything, they're just acting. So it's easy to have the right reaction when you're kind of, I guess, playing it or scripting it when it's a scripted reaction. Yeah, you just kind of know what you're supposed to do at the moment, so you show that as your face. Detective Hodel wasn't able to track Alcala down because he'd fled to New York after Tally's attack and was now living under the name John Berger. He applied and was accepted to the New York University School of the Arts as an undergrad. Between 1968 and 1971, Alcala worked as a security guard so he could afford his tuition and spent his free time hanging out at local bars with friends. It's crazy because I don't think these days you could pull that off, like, with all the technology and, like, I guess some people maybe go and they get an alias and they keep going, but this guy lived for a while under his alias, and I just feel like these days he probably wouldn't have uh, made it near as far. Well, you have to go a little bit deeper these days when you... uh fake your identity you can't just have that top layer like they did back then could google you yeah yeah you Maybe gotta dig deep that. you gotta get a real good alias you know, good backstory and you gotta pay some people off to lie for you 
He casually dated a few women who are likely very lucky to have not become one of his victims. In the summers, Alcala worked at an arts and drama camp in New Hampshire, where he was well-liked by his co-workers and the campers. He graduated in 1971 and prepared to leave for his last year working at the camp. Did he go back to school and get another degree, or did he just get another fine arts degree for John Berger? Yeah, he just got another fine arts degree to be a photographer. In another name. Interesting. Twice the work? Just to have an well, alias. That's a dedication. Not really twice the work. It's one time doing the work and the second time... Turning in old papers? Basically. <laughs> in June of 1971, Cornelia Crilly had just graduated from the Transworld Airline Flight Attendant School to become an air hostess. She and two roommates had just gotten a new apartment in Manhattan and were excited to begin their lives flying around the world. On June 24, 1971, Cornelia was busy moving furniture into her new apartment and stopped to call her mom, telling her she'd call back later and let her know how things were going. A few hours later, Mrs. Crilly called Cornelia and no one picked up the phone. Calling again half an hour later, she still couldn't get a hold of her. She called Cornelia's boyfriend, Leon Borstein, at his work and asked if he'd be able to stop by the apartment and check on Cornelia. Once there, he knocked on the door and got no answer. He climbed a fire escape to her window, but wasn't able to reach it. Leon decided to walk over to the police department and ask an officer to come back and check on things for him. Once they'd gotten inside, nothing looked out of place or raised any suspicion. As they walked to the second bedroom, they were completely unprepared for what they found. Cornelia Crilly lay dead in her bed, a stocking tied around her neck and her upper garment stuffed in her mouth. Her face and head had been beaten, she had been sexually assaulted, and there were bite marks on her breasts. Because there was no signs of forced entry, police assumed she must have known her murderer in some way. By the second evening, 25 investigators were on the case and doing everything possible with the limited resources they had in the 1970s. DNA was collected from the saliva on her breasts, but there was no way to process it, so it sat untouched. So what, what victim number is this, do we know? So far, we're with two in This is his account. first murder victim. Okay. Tally was his first. Well, it might not have been. There's People have guessed that he has upwards of 100 victims because they assume that all of the photographs he have has are of women that he killed or at least sexually assaulted. Okay. So there's no way to really know unless any more people come forward. A month later, LAPD Detective Hodel was still trying to track down Ocala for Tally Shapiro's attack. He set up a meeting with LA's FBI office, who decided that Ocala's crime was horrible enough for them to add him to their most wanted list. Posters went out all over the country, including New Hampshire. While Alcala was working at his summer camp as camp counselor John Berger, two campers went to the local post office to drop off some mail. Waiting for the rain to stop inside the office, they looked over the posters hanging on the wall and stumbled on the FBI's most wanted poster for Rodney Alcala. Staring at it, the women couldn't help but notice John Berger looked exactly like the man on the poster. Thinking it couldn't possibly be him, the girls went back to camp and told their director about what they'd seen. When he went and checked it for himself, he realized he needed to call the FBI right there and then. They told him to go back to camp and act as if nothing was wrong, and they would be there in the morning to see if it was really him. That's got to be pretty stressful when you're, like, pretty sure that you've got this guy who's been accused of some pretty fucked up stuff, 
and he's also a camp counselor. And you're like, okay, I got to just go back and act like everything's normal. You guys are going to come tomorrow. But what about tonight? So what stopped him from his extracurricular activities at the camp? Because I'm assuming he had to stay at the camp for an extended period of time. Was he just, this was his downtime? I think it just would have been too obvious if one of the campers went missing. I mean, he's supposed to know exactly where and where they are at all times. And if one of them just happens to go missing, he's the last one that saw them. It's obviously going to fall on him pretty quick. When the agents arrived and compared fingerprints, they positively ID'd John Berger as Rodney Alcala. He was arrested and held in jail, waiting for Detective Hodel to come escort him back to Los Angeles. When Hodel asked why he did what he did to Tali, Alcala's reply was, quote, I don't want to talk about Rod Alcala and what he did. So he's talking about himself and another person now? Basically. So he has a split personality disorder going on? No. Or he's no. pretending like he does? or No, he's just saying he's a new man now, John Berger. So whatever Rodney Alcala did, he's not responsible for. Oh, I forgot that's how it works. You can just do whatever you want and go steal someone's ID. Once he was extradited back to L.A., Alcala didn't even have his day in court. Because the Shapiro family had moved to Mexico, prosecutors didn't think they had a strong case to take to trial and instead offered a plea. If Alcala would plead guilty to child molestation, they would drop the kidnapping and attempted murder charges. On May 19, 1972, Alcala was given an indeterminate sentence of 1 to 10 years. This meant that any time between that one to ten years, Alcala could go before the parole board and convince them to let him out of prison. And that is exactly what he did. After a prison psychiatrist determined Alcala was considerably improved in 1974, he was given a recommendation for release. He was paroled after less than three years in prison for raping and almost killing an eight-year-old child. Is that just because of the time that he was in? Like, why did he get such a lenient sentence? He was really good at bullshitting the people that mattered, and he's really fucking lucky. And he will be for basically his entire life. Even though now he literally looks like Howard Stern. Oh, he's an idiot dipshit. He looks horrible, but yeah. How did he not get his ass beat in prison being a chomo? Um, he was probably in protective custody. Especially with the long glowing or the long flowing gold locks. Not gold, gray locks. He didn't have gray hair back then either. He's had gray hair for a while. I was looking. He's old. He's an old motherfucker. By the time he went to court, he was like in his 50s, 60s. And he literally looked like Howard Stern fucked a sheepdog. After being released, Alcala moved back in with his mother and got a photography job with a company that took photos for stores in L.A. On October 13th, Alcala pulled into a shopping center in Huntington Beach and saw a young girl who looked to be around eight. Her name, Julie, was written on her backpack so he spoke directly to her, offering her a ride to school. She originally ignored him, but took him up on his offer when he said that he had cool posters to show her. Julie started getting nervous when they passed right by her school without stopping, continuing towards the highway. Alcala yelled at her to sit still when she started fidgeting in her seat, and she began to scream. She tried getting out, but he pulled over to a spot along a cliff, keeping a strong grip on her arm led her towards a rock, and made her sit and smoke marijuana with him. When she tried running again, he grabbed her leg and put his arm around her and kissed her. A few hundred yards away, a park ranger glanced up and saw them. Assuming they were using drugs, as most people did in that area, he went to go ask them some questions. 
Alcala told the ranger they were taking a break from hiking, but Julie told him she had been forced there and wanted to go home. They were both arrested and taken to the police station, where Alcala said that Julie had brought the marijuana and Julie said that Alcala kidnapped her. When their names were run, they discovered Alcala was on parole and he was charged with selling marijuana, kidnapping, and parole violation. It's almost upsetting that they even needed to run his name at this time. Like, he's like kissing an eight-year-old. He's claiming that she brought him the weed. I I just don't understand why they would even arrest the the eight-year-old kid in the first place in this situation. Obviously, something's fucked up here. Yeah, but it's the easiest way to get them away from the situation they're in. And they also didn't know how old she was. I mean, she was a child, but she could have just been, like, a small 15-year-old, like... Yeah. They don't even arrest a 15-year-old. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, but it's the quick... Like like I said, it's the quickest way to find out what's going on. You take them both to a neutral zone, away from each other. They can't confirm or corroborate each other's lies. So that's how you get a story out of someone. Even if the child is eight years old, you don't want to just say, Oh, okay, well, we're going to wait here for whoever to come get you they had no way of really contacting whoever too and finding out who her parents were to come get her i'm just saying they don't have to arrest the six the eight-year-old the eight-year-old's obviously not the one here doing well they might i highly doubt they handcuffed her and like put her into the black the back of a police car i'm sure they just took her into custody and let her ride in the front to the police station i would hope so On December 26, he was found guilty of providing a minor with drugs and parole violation and was sent back to prison. In June of 1977, the parole board once again determined Alcala was reformed and he was granted parole. This guy has the quickest reformation process of any criminal I've ever heard of. Most psychopaths do, though. Yeah, I guess you're right. Unlike last time, Alcala was assigned a parole officer for his release. A few weeks after being released from prison, he went to a meeting and asked permission to take a trip to New York to visit his relatives. For whatever reason, his parole officer agreed. There's nobody he could abuse, murder, and rape in New York. Let him go. It'll be fine. It's not the busiest place in America. The most people in America. I don't think that's correct, but... I think New York has the most people in America. Did he give a reason why he... He needed permission to go to New York. Like, he obviously had a reason he thought he needed to go there. And if it had been a good enough reason, I could see why the parole board would. He said he wanted to take a trip and visit his relatives. Huh. You gotta tell him your gam-gam's dying or something at least, right? Apparently not. They totally let him go. But if you are planning on leaving the state, you obviously have to tell your parole officer, so. I see Alcala arrived in July of 1977, the same time 23-year-old Ellen Jane Hover was beginning her life as a college graduate in a new city. On July 13th, the electrical blackout left New York City without power for over 25 hours. Trying to escape the heat, Ellen was standing outside her apartment building. She was spotted talking to a tall man with a ponytail, and when asked by friends who he was, she told them he was a photographer. On July 15th, the same man was spotted knocking on Ellen's door around noon. That evening, Ellen didn't show up to dinner with her friend and didn't call her parents, as she did every night. Her stepfather contacted police, who headed to her apartment for a welfare check. When they arrived and made entry, nothing was out of place and there were no signs of forced entry. The only thing potentially useful was her day planner, open to July 15th, with John Berger, photographer, written on the page. 
At the same time as Ellen's disappearance, David Berkowitz, also known as Son of Sam or the 44 caliber killer, was on his shooting rampage in New York. Because there was a serial killer on the loose and an uptick of general violence in the city, NYPD did what they could with Ellen's missing person case, but it was lower on their list of priorities than it normally would have been. So they've already come across him using this John Berger alias, right? In New Hampshire, not in New York, no. Okay, so in New York they weren't even really... They had no, oh, like, no idea that John Berger, photographer, was literally was literally an like alias for get murdered. Well, technically, in New York, John Berger is a bachelor of fine arts holder and an upstanding citizen. Still, he's not just an AKA Robert Rodney Acala. You know, he's a he's his own entity in New York. And that's the beauty of an alias, right? Mm-hmm. Even if your face is plastered all over water wanted posters. In August, Alcala arrived back in Los Angeles after driving from New York to El Paso, Texas, to visit family. It's assumed that during this time, he passed through Granger, Wyoming, where he met six months pregnant Christine Ruth Thornton. She disappeared during this time and was never seen alive again. We'll discuss her case later, as it wasn't linked to Alcala until 2013. Once he'd arrived back in Los Angeles, he landed a job with the Los Angeles Times, lying on his resume about his time in prison and apparently avoiding a background check that would have revealed he was a registered sex offender. They weren't as strict about that shit back then, were they? No, because it wasn't as easy back then. You couldn't just type some numbers into a computer and know everything they've ever done in their life. Yes, that's true. Was the, uh... In November of 1977, 17-year-old Jill Barcombe was eager to start her life. She'd recently dropped out of high school and moved in with her older sister in Oneida, New York. Wanting to get out of the small town, she took a trip to Los Angeles with a group of friends. Shortly after they arrived, her friend's van was repossessed and they returned to New York, leaving her in L.A. alone. Jill didn't care. She loved California and was perfectly happy starting her life from scratch. At some point, she crossed paths with Rodney Alcala, and her life was ended tragically early. Seems like a pretty common theme for old Rodney. Pretty fucked up. In the early morning hours of November 10th, 1977, two LAPD officers received an ambulance and dead body call at a service road in West Los Angeles. As the officers drove down the unpaved road, they came upon the body of a woman. Her body was staged. She was on all fours with her knees bent, pointing outward. She was nude, and her face was stuck so tightly against her chest it looked like her neck was broken. The top of her head was on the ground, between her knees. Her right hand was tucked under her, with her fingers close to her anus, which had been severely lacerated and dripped blood onto her fingers and the dirt. Her sweater and pants, which were under her body, were soaked in blood, and one of her pant legs was tied around her neck. Two footprints were behind her body, left by Alcala, who had raped and sodomized her. A bloody rock was found next to her, used to strike her over the head and face multiple times. So, is this a kind of different routine for him, where he was left the safety of a private like apartment or home and took them out to the middle of nowhere is this like a break from his regular mo or is this just kind of also part of it 
No, because with Ellen Hover, she was also taken out to kind of a desolate area and murdered, we'll learn later, but I think it was mostly just opportunity. This is where he found her, or the easiest place to take her, and obviously no one was going to see him in the middle of the night, so... Her autopsy revealed massive face, head, and neck trauma, and skull fragments were found in multiple lacerations. Blood vessels in her eyes and around her heart had burst from her being strangled, almost to the point of death, then revived, and the process repeated. Underneath, the pant leg tied around her neck were a pair of stockings tied together and tightly around her neck, along with her belt, also cinched tightly. Her right breast had been bitten so deeply her nipple was almost severed. Her anus was lacerated and cut, and her pubic hair had been singed by some sort of flame used to torture her. Almost all of her injuries were inflicted upon her while she was still alive. The most likely cause of death was the blows to the head from the rock, but the strangulation contributed. Jill Barcombe was 4 feet 11 inches and weighed only 95 pounds. Rodney Alcala was 5 foot 10 and a half inches, a foot taller than his victim. God damn, that was brutal. That's what we're going to end part one this week, guys. So we're going to go ahead and do a little lighthearted stuff for you guys to get that out of your out of your brain boxes. A palate cleanser, just to break it up before next ep- before next week when we get back into the uh, not lighthearted crimes. Rodney James Alcala. All right, so I have a pretty uh, pretty good story here for you guys. Um, this is about Stumpy. Stumpy is a white Labrador, and he has spent his entire life now donating blood to help other dogs. Aw, Stumpy. Why do they call him Stumpy? Stumpy was originally supposed to be born, well, Stumpy was originally born, and was supposed to be a uh, service dog, but he was born with teeny tiny legs. So as you can see there, he looks kind of like George with his teeny tiny legs. They're not that small. They're just a little small and pointed outward. Well, they were small enough for him to be no longer considered a service dog. And instead, he found a new calling in life. He uh, donates blood and is the uh, record holder for the most blood donations given by a canine. So why does he just give blood? Because his uh, pet parent is a veterinarian, and uh, she thought that, that would be a good thing for him to do he is now given blood 30 times he has saved 120 dogs lives and now after all all these years he is retiring from the blood donor life at nine to just enjoy being a senior pup but thought it was pretty cool because uh you know he's a record setter yeah stumpy does set records so he couldn't be a service dog so his owner decided he needed to donate blood. Yeah, and because of that, uh, the Pet Blood Bank of the UK gave him this uh, hamper of dog treats. Oh, so he's a puppy across the pond. He's across the pond, giving blood, saving red coats. I don't think they're red coats anymore. The Irish setters are. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> so... That was a uh, good boy. Good for Stumpy. Stumpy is a good boy. You can just see it right there. He's on the beach. He's happy. He has a big nose. 
He, he does. A, he has a big nose and a dumb face. He's just, you know, he uses it to save other dogs' lives. Sniffing out dogs that need stumpy blood. So stumpy is it blood. is it blood for like surgery or blood transfusions? Like what what do dogs need uh transfusions, surgery, you know, pretty much the same things that humans get. Uh dogs lose blood, dogs need more blood. And that's where Stumpy comes in. Well, all right, guys. We will talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list uh, to you know give us any ideas for maybe an episode that you guys might want to hear, even if it's not in the Four Corners states. Or uh, maybe you just want to get a fancy sticker with our logo on it. You can uh, jump on there, type in the code Bingo Bango at checkout, and we will get that sticker. Sh- we will get that sticker sent straight out to you. For free. So, we hope you guys are enjoying the brutalness. No. We hope you guys hate the brutalness. No. Enjoy the... Just end it. (laughs) Just fucking end it. (laughs) Take a personality test this week and have a good one. Yeah, 16personalities.com. It will give you a fairly somewhat could be if you're honest with yourself accurate description of your personality and if you don't know your best friend it might you might not have a clue what you're even talking about that's true it's just weird that two people took the quiz for you and got the same answer but that's fine this episode has been sponsored by 16personalities.org dot com and uh i guess we'll talk to you next week guys see ya adios motherfuckers Can you just let me bring it in with a little bit of class? No, because you don't have a little bit of class. You have no class. You are classless. You are like (laughs) the trailer that Cousin Eddie lives in in National Lampoon. That's how classless you are.